it is time to get back to some solid roots, a biblical worldview that can present solid reasons for purity and faithfulness in marriage. Can a virile, handsome young man resist the advances of an available, attractive woman who wants him desperately? Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtzen, begins his discussion of Joseph and the boss's wife with a modern story about an attractive, mature woman with a hunger for a young lawyer. Jack had just recently graduated from Yale Law School, one of the leading law schools in the country. When he graduated, he was courted by many different firms all around the country, Boston, New York, California. And he decided that he really wanted to get to middle America, to come back to the heart of the country. And so he moved down to Dallas. And John Wilson, the guy that was the senior member of the firm, was really excited to have Jack there. Jack was about six foot four, the kind of a guy that went to the gym every single day. He found out, even under the intense pressure of Ivy League academics, that if he just took a break, maybe from four to five every day, went over and worked out with the weights for about a half an hour and then went and swam laps in the, in the pool for another half an hour, that it kind of cleared the cobwebs out. He could go and eat a light supper and then study till about one or two in the morning and he could maintain this intense schedule. So when he went into law practice for real, he maintained that daily rigor of exercise. He also found that keeping that six foot four inch frame in shape gave him a lot of command and a lot of presence before a jury. And when he made his final statement, this imposing hulk of a guy that's in great physical shape, uh, it made some points with the jury, especially the female members. He also found that as he traveled around Dallas, uh, some of those nice-looking North Dallas women would take a second look at Jack. He didn't think anything about it. It was a big afternoon. The jury went out, and they deliberated for about an hour and a half, and then they came back in, and they announced the verdict. And it was one of those rare things in the life of a lawyer. It was his very first big win. When the jury came in and he had won the case, and that night there was a big party that was held over at John's house, his boss's house, and his wife Deborah, who was about 38, put on this marvelous gala of a party. And Jack really didn't think that much about it. I mean, it was a marvelous thing. John and Deborah were his good friends. And as he watched Deborah that night, she hardly looked 38 and the mother of two teenagers with her dressed in elegant North Dallas party dress. She looked like she was maybe just 25 or so. And Jack was kind of naive. Even though he'd gone to law school and everything else, he was still kind of naive in the ways of the world. And it barely entered his mind that all through the evening, Deborah kept looking at him. He knew that John was leaving on the 5.30 special from DFW, taken off for the East Coast. And so he was kind of surprised when about 9 o'clock, as he began his routine of the morning, he got a telephone call. Hello, this is Deborah. Would you like to go out for lunch today? Now, what choice is Jack going to make? You see, there's lunches and there are lunches. And every one of you men are going to have to know the difference. And every one of you women are going to have to know the difference. And all of us have the idea that the Word of God doesn't know about the North Dallas scene, or it doesn't know about the New York scene, or it doesn't know about the Midlothian scene. But he does. And that's the marvelous thing about the Word of God. The Word of God enters into the realities of where all of us live day by day. 
Chapter 39 of Genesis is a chapter that teaches us how to guard our hearts. Last week we learned about Judah. We learned about a man who had very little morals. Judah would get involved with a, with a prostitute. And as it turned out, the Lord worked through that story in a powerful way as we talked about the roots of the Messiah. But the Word of God gives us a contrast this week. And what it does in Genesis 39 is it tells us how a young Jack like I've just described to you, can make that decision about that lunch. What he needs to be aware of, what he needs to be careful of, what he needs to be aware of. So let's look at Genesis chapter 39. When we left Joseph, he was in a caravan, sold into slavery. Hardly your good circumstances of life. Genesis chapter 39, we have Joseph down in Egypt, and it says in verse 1, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, probably one of his high officials, the captain of the guard, that's where we get, this would be one of his leading generals. You might say that Potiphar was like a four-star general in the army of the Egyptian Pharaoh. And this captain of the guard bought him, bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had taken him from there. Lest you be a little bit confused, some of you that are real detailed kind of people, you might notice that in the earlier chapter he was bought by the Midianites and now it's the Ishmaelites. Well, the Ishmaelites and Midianites were kind of terms that could be used as a catch-all phrase for desert people, people that were kind of wanderers and traitors. And so Joseph was sold into slavery. How would you react if you were sold into slavery? Anybody have a bad week this week? You know, I began to wonder whether, whether I really needed to speak this morning because I was mowing the lawn yesterday and I went underneath a branch and a tree hit me right in the eye and I ducked and kept right on going, didn't think anything about it till about 5.30 last night when my eye was all mattered up and I couldn't keep it open and we went and celebrated James's birthday a little bit last night and everyone's sitting there going, you sure you feel all right? You sure you feel all right? And so I tried to go to sleep last night and you know how it is when your eye is hurting and then Mary was up and down with me all night. She kept asking me all night, Yo, you sure you're all right? You sure we're all right? You know, it's really great. You know, one o'clock, you're all right, Dave. And you just go from one thing to the next. You ever feel like you've been sold into slavery? <laughs> you know, that's the way it is in life. It just seems sometimes you get into circumstances that are really negative. And, and we've been learning, and I want to emphasize this from the life of Joseph. One of the great realities of the life of Joseph is that he knew how to live in the pits. You see, all of us want to jump and live up in the palace. We want to live when everything is going great, when we're prosperous, when we feel healthy, when everything is fine. But when things go into the pits, when we find out maybe one of our loved ones is very ill, or when we find out that a business deal that we were really counting on doesn't come through, or when we thought that position at school that we really wanted to get, we don't get it. And Joseph teaches us about the down times of life. Here was a young man that faced an incredibly down time. Can you imagine your brothers sell you to people and the next thing you know, you're several hundred miles away from home. You're in a foreign country and you go from being the, the chosen son, the one that has the beautiful clothes, the beautiful coat, the one who's given the power positions, and now you're just a slave. Now, all of us are going to face that time, and in that time, it's easy to say, well, let's forget about the Lord Jesus. Let's forget about God. One of the ways that I react to hard times and the pits is to say, what's the use? I guess all that stuff that my dad's taught me from the time I was a kid, I guess all the things in this book are not real. 
The lesson of Joseph, the first thing I want you to see about living the life of a servant is that God is with you in the pits and he's with you in Egypt. Look what it says about Joseph in the next verse. It says in verse 2, now the Lord was with Joseph. And if you write in your Bible, if you underline your Bible, you should underline that phrase. If anybody ever asks you, what's the meaning of the life of Joseph? What is the meaning of this man's life? What I want you to say is, God was with him. Now, if God is with you, it's better to be in Egypt as a slave than home without God. Judah at this time is home, but he's living without God. The story that we looked at last week probably took place during this time period of Joseph's imprisonment and slavery in Egypt. Judah, God wasn't with him. But at this time in his life, God was still with Joseph, even in prison. Now, Jesus promises just before he went to heaven, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So circumstances can be tough. We can hit our eye. We can get tonsillitis. We can be sick. We can have financial setbacks. We can lose our families. All different kinds of things can happen. We can feel like we're all alone. But if we've invited Christ into our life, if we had become one of God's children, and Joseph had done that, you might say in an Old Testament sense, God is with you. And that's the thing that makes life able to keep going on. It enables us to keep keeping on. We should celebrate the presence of God. The New Testament says that the Holy Presence of God, the Holy Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, for by one spirit were we all baptized into one family. That's a spiritual baptism that takes place the moment that we're born again. And it means if I'm at a and I'm at the University of Texas, if I'm here in Dallas area, UTA, if I'm in high school, if I'm in uh, Gifford Hill or the new name for the company now or TXI or Chaparral, God is with me. Now, what does the presence of God do in Joseph's life? It says God was with Joseph and he prospered. Now, this would be a great text for the prosperity gospel, and I think that that's pushing it too far. The idea, if God is with you, then you're going to succeed. What Genesis is really picking up on, I think in reacting to that, it's easy to go to the other extreme and say, well, if God is present in your life, you're going to have total failure. You're going to get sticks in your eye and get sick and everything else. It's easy to go to the other extreme, and that's not true. What this text is really telling us is the idea of wisdom. It's picking up on a theme in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs says that if you live skillfully, the norm of life is that people will notice you. They will respond to you. They will love you. And you will prosper in your firm. In other words, what it's saying is that as a young person, if you follow the skillful principles, like you're not being a sluggard, like in the book I share in, in Raising Worldly Wise and Innocent Kids, I share a chapter on the sluggard about being beware of laziness. If you're aware of uh, how immorality can get you, if we use our money wisely, and on and on it goes, if we live skillfully, then the norm of life is that we prosper. And that's a very important point. The book of Proverbs is a book that's good to read every single day, a chapter. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. I've often shared that with you. And uh, Billy Graham will read a cha one chapter from Proverbs every day. That's a great example. And what it does is to build the kind of wisdom into our life that Joseph is talking about. And the norm, even of the business world, even if you're a slave, 
And when you start out working for TXI or Gifford Hill and you're working in the, or a Chaparral and you're working in the melt shop or something like that, you feel like a slave. But what the scripture saying is, is in that melt shop, if you work hard and work faithfully as a slave in a way, and you put up with abuse, just like Joseph had to put up with, but you're faithful and you're disciplined, what it's saying is that the norm of life is that overseers notice you. They become aware of you. They notice that you're there on time. They notice you give them a strong eight hours of work. If you take initiative, they notice that you have ideas. And the norm of life is that that prospers you. Now, that's what happened to Joseph. Now, we're going to find out at the end of this chapter that right in the midst of all that prosperity, wham, injustice is going to throw him in jail. So it's not like, you know, man, if I serve the Lord, I'm going to be blessed and I'll never have any problems. That's not at all what this chapter is saying. But let's not miss the idea that under the norm of life, if you're wise and you're skillful, you're going to be successful. Joseph was so successful that his master saw that the Lord was with him. What a testimony. Potiphar, his master, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh, saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did. In verse 4, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of all of his household and he entrusted. Notice that word, he entrusted. He gave over to the care of Joseph everything that he owned. From that time on, he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, and the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left Joseph in charge of everything that he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now that's kind of a lazy guy, I guess. But in a lot of ways, Potiphar was a very wise leader. In fact, if you're a manager and you're in a leadership position, it's good management technique if you notice that you have some young Turks that are working underneath you, you have some young guys and girls that are gifted, maybe they're fresh out of school, and they need some experience, but they've got tremendous talent. The wise manager knows how to read that character. They know how to read the young person that gets to work on time, that works hard, that does the kind of things that I was sharing before. And the wise manager, rather than restricting them and being afraid of them, learns how to facilitate them. And I want to promise you this. You ought to pay big money to get this. In your work, if you'll learn as you grow older to be a facilitator, if you'll learn not to be threatened, if you'll learn to be able to take young Josephs and give them responsibility, it will pay off big dividends in your life. My dad in this regard was a lot like Potiphar. When I hit adolescence, rather than hitting a time of rebellion, I felt like I hit a time of greater responsibility. Because I've shared with you in the past, my dad, when I was 13, it was before the New York had working paper laws. You couldn't work till you were 14. But when I was 13, you didn't have to have those. So I went to work taking care of about 26, 7, and 8-year-olds. My dad gave me that responsibility. So for 10 weeks in the summertime, I chased what we called deputies all over the place. When I was 16, rather than being out, partying and all that stuff, my dad put enough confidence in me to let me direct that program. He let me direct the deputy program. And so I was known as Deputy Dave. 
for about two years. And I carried a six-gun. My dad used to tease me. All I did on Saturday was play like one of these western towns that you would go to, kind of like the western part of Six Flags, only it was a real western town. And what we would do is fight bandits for several hours. And you'd have 300 kids cheering you on, hoping that the bandit didn't beat you up. My dad said, we actually pay you to do this. But I also had about 50 college kids that were counseling at Word of Life. And I was responsible for the program side of their time there at camp. When I was 19, it was the summer that Mary and I were engaged. I was going to work at the island and Mary was going to work at the inn. And just before camp started, the director of the ranch had a very serious problem, and he had to resign. And my dad called me with Gene Getz, Dr. Getz, and Gene looked at me and said, you know, Dave, I really believe, and I'm not just saying this, but I believe that you need to take the ranch this summer. You have the experience, and I want you to do it. And I looked at my dad, and my dad said, I didn't initiate it. Gene thinks you can do it along with all the other guys that are working down there at the ranch. When I was 19, I had 425 kids that I was responsible for for 10 weeks, and we had a marvelous summer. But what I want you to realize is that my dad gave me a very precious gift in doing that. He put confidence in me. He believed in me. He believed that I would be able to function, be able to, to do that job. Daddies, put confidence in your kids. Dads, when you see your sons and your daughters do what they're told, when they get there on time, when you tell them to be back at a certain time and they're there on time within reason, do you praise them for that? Do you put confidence? Do you say, you know, that really means a great deal to me. A lot of other kids, they don't listen to their parents at all and you're there on time. That really means a lot to me. Do you praise that obedience? And then do you give them more responsibility? Do you give them greater freedom? You see, that needs to carry over not only in our business life, facilitating the people that are underneath us, but going on from there, doing the same thing with our kids. Potiphar was a wise man. He gave a gifted young man underneath him the freedom and the responsibility and the authority that he needed. As far as our church, that's what we need to do in our church. And that's been a marvelous thing that's been happening, to see young people coming up, and rather than an older leadership, often in a church family, Older leadership is scared of those young Turks coming on. And they grip and they won't let go. And what we need to learn to do is be like Potiphar, to open up the door for giftedness. But right in the midst of success, right in the midst of when you're really prospering and things are going well, and Joseph is saying, man alive, I was sold into slavery, but things are going great now. Right in the midst of success, watch out. Right in the midst of success, watch out. In my own life, in failure, I'm on my knees. When I didn't get into medical school, like I've shared with you, I was on my knees. When I flunked a math exam, I was on my knees. When I failed, I drew very close to God. But when you succeed, that's when you have trouble. How about you? It's in success that we become incredibly vulnerable. And Joseph is a marvelous help to us in this regard, right when he was flying high, like Jack the young lawyer that we started out with, right in that moment of success, that's when Satan's coming in like a flood. Look what happened. It came from a very unexpected source. Verse 7. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. Naughty, naughty, naughty. 
That's the problem right there. You know, we've been learning about these well-built, beautiful people only in the patriarchal story. You see, you all laughed. You know why you laughed? Because it was a man that was handsome and well-built. But if it would have been a woman that it said was well-built and handsome, you wouldn't have laughed quite as hard. And some of you guys would have said, well, that's the problem right there. They weren't so good-looking, we wouldn't have the problem. Often work with people with that. The idea there's just something wrong with this body. Well, we've been working the last several weeks to learn there's nothing wrong with the physical body that God gave us. This is a very interesting twist in the narration of Genesis because every other time up to this point, when you read about somebody being well-built and good-looking, it's Sarah down in Egypt. You remember when Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt and Abraham says, Honey, you're going to be my sister for a few weeks while we're down here. Say, why are we going to do that? Because you're such a good-looking woman. These Egyptians down here are going to chuck me into the Nile River, feed me the crocs, and you're going to have it live happily ever after in some big sheik down here or whatever it is. Remember the lie? Same thing. Isaac pulled the same thing with Rebecca. Rebecca was like Sarah. She too was well-built and good-looking. He uses exactly the same words in Hebrew. And Isaac's up there with Abimelech. And he tells Abimelech the same cock and bull story that his grandfather, that his father told. Same kind of a deal and almost got the same kind of results. God had to shut down all the reproductive systems of a land until the patriarchs got things straightened out. But here, the story has a twist. Instead of it being the beautiful woman that's in danger, now it is the man that's in danger. A marvelous balance in God's Word, because often we think in traditional terms of the girls in the audience that are very vulnerable and could get in trouble. But we sometimes fail to remember that the guys can be the ones that can face this kind of temptation. What we have here is a classic Mrs. Robinson story in the 60s, one of Dustin Hoffman's first major films was called The Graduate. If you stay up late at night and you watch something that you shouldn't, you might have seen it. Some of you in your unconverted days might have seen this, right? The essence of that film is a takeoff on this literary theme. The married woman who is older, it doesn't fill in a lot of the details. It doesn't tell us, you know, whether her husband was unattentive. It doesn't tell us whether he was some kind of a, a jerk, you know, that paid no attention to her. It doesn't tell us, you know, maybe she was just in the middle of midlife crisis thinking this was the end and it was her last chance to tango. You see how I'm picking up these themes? I want you to see that these themes that Hollywood throws at you are the themes of human existence. Only Hollywood, in, unlike the Bible, usually throws you a moral curve. Rather than teaching you right and rather than telling you the truth, they throw a curve into the story. And so that you'll have immoral behavior that doesn't produce bad consequences. Now the Bible will tell you the same kind of story. So be careful about what you knock in entertainment about themes. As believers, we need to be very careful about that. The Bi Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves trashing a lot of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. But what you need to learn to do is to see that the Bible tells it right. The Bible tells the truth. It speaks the truth in love. The story tells the story, the Genesis 39 tells the story of the graduate, and the story works the way real life will work for you.
What happens? Potiphar's wife is looking at Joseph. It says in verse 7, Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph. It begins with eye contact. The wife took notice. I challenge you to do something this week. As you're going through life, watch for the second look. Now, this is going to make all of you paranoid. I don't want to do that. But like a church, for example, this is a large brother-sister gathering. And so there's eye contact in this group. And there might be a second and third eye contact. There might even be hugs. In fact, that's a good holy thing. Because it can be a brother-sister contact. Okay? Wherever you go, watch for the eye contact there. Guys and girls, especially watch eye contact. You see, your first response when a guy looks at a girl or a girl looks at a guy, what is your very first response? No, that isn't. What you do is you look and then your eyes go, they go away. And then your mind says, now what should I do now? The way that you come back the second time tells a great deal about what's going on inside. And someone that knows human nature just with a look can read a book of knowledge. Potiphar's wife is using her eyes on Joseph. As Joseph works around the house, she keeps looking at him with the eyes of immorality. Not the eyes of a sister, but with the eyes of immorality. And what you need to learn, you see, if your heart is clear, if you're guarding your heart, and you're living for the kind of values that we're studying about in the Word of God, then we become very sensitive. It's like a blinking red light that's going off. Beware, 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 beware. But Potiphar's wife, you say, well, man, that'll take care of the problem. I just don't return the eye contact. I know who not to look at a second time. I know to be cautious about those areas, and everything will be fine. Maybe not. Maybe not. You say, well, maybe we, we can just move. When you're a slave, you can't move. When you're a slave, you've got to go and work in the house every day. So notice what happens next. We begin with the physical sexual attraction, the eye contact. Then look what it says. It says in the, in the, uh, the end of verse 7, And she said to Joseph, Come to bed with me. You thought that was a 1980s temptation? I mean, this girl just lays it right on. There's the proposition, just flat out, come to bed with me. So Joseph said, oh, that would be a great idea. I've been watching it on TV. Saw in the movies, that's the way I should live. Read it in the novels. Be a great time. Beautiful Cleopatra. What a story. Jewish boy seduced in the court of Potiphar. Goes to bed with beautiful Egyptian queen. They all live happily ever after, right? I want you to notice something. And he what? Refused. I wish we'd all repeat that together. I want you to repeat that together. And he refused. Tell me. And he refused. And you girls can say, and she, meaning you, I, and I refused. Boy, if we could learn to say that. So much heartache would be, would be alleviated and met. So that solves the problem. You don't return the eye contact. When you get proposition, you say no. Just say. That takes care of the problem, right? Not going to have any more problem after that. Wait, look what happens. But he refused, and notice how he refuses. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, 
Everything he owns, he has entrusted to me. Joseph starts out with a relationship with his boss. It's a relationship of trust. No one is greater in this house. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her even or even be with her. It's a lot of wise advice. I want you to, I want you to get two very important things, really three things, but the two first ones are really important. Number one, I want every one of you to look up at me and think. Immorality always involves a breach of trust. I want you to remember that. Immorality always involves a breach of trust. That's what it always is. Dave Wurtzen is connected to every one of these kids sitting over here and every one of these adults over here and every one of these kids, not just Joshua. If I'm immoral, I crush Joshua's life. That's the truth, and I want everyone to realize that, and I want you to realize it. That's what Joseph is saying. Did you hear that? Joseph is saying, I am connected in relationship in a good, holy way with my master, Potiphar. He is my master. In modern parlance, it, you would say, he is my boss. You see, what Jack and the story that I started out with, what could help Jack to resist, John Wilson was his friend. You see, that's why I told this story the way I did. John brought him from Yale to Dallas and got him started with a good firm. And when he was prosperous, instead of coming down on him, he celebrated with him. John was Jack's friend. And what Joseph is saying, and I want you to feel it in a modern context, Joseph is telling Potiphar's wife, I cannot go to bed with you because it would be a breach of trust with my friend, someone that trusts me. Now, trust is a very priceless thing. The trust that you put in me, the trust that I put into you, is one of the greatest things that we have in this room. And the marvelous thing is that God's grace can renew trust. Even when there's failure, the Holy Spirit can come in and bring cleansing. So every one of us in this room, by grace, can be forgiven and can enter into relationships of trust, no matter what our past story might be. But when you are forgiven and you're, and you're really getting close to God, this thing of trust becomes very precious to you again. I often mention to young people to bring out this idea of relationships and how relationships are important. I say to a group of young people, I will say, how would you guys feel if your dad, if you found out that your dad had an affair? Or I say it like this. I said, how would you feel... If you went out about 11.30 at night and your dad was in the back seat of a car with a woman that was not your mom, how would you feel about it? Now, I'm not implying that any dads in this group are doing that. I mentioned that to an audience and I had a couple of kids climb all over me. They thought I was being down on their dad. I pray with all my heart, no dad would do that. But I want you to think... But it brings us something very important. What would you think of your dad if you caught him doing that? Now, most kids are repulsed by that. They say, man, that would be horrible. Man, I, I could, I'd be angry. I'll say, why do you do it? Why do you do it? 
What makes you think that your dad lives under a different set of standards? You say, well, he's married. One day you could be married. You say, he's my dad. You could be a dad someday. And what makes you think that a marriage ceremony that lasts about 25 minutes changes character? It doesn't. You see, what we learn to control before marriage is what we have self-control with in marriage. Now, there is a difference because God says in Matthew 7 and it says in Hebrews 13 that marriage is the place to celebrate and to love. But the, but the lustful, passionate side of immorality that's part of Satan's kingdom doesn't just change when you get married. The temptations don't go away. Kids, ask any married person in this room. And what an immoral person always forgets is connections. They always forget their legitimate connections. So the first thing that Joseph teaches us, and he screams at us today and says, please, my brothers and sisters, remember your legitimate connections. Immorality is against someone. It destroys someone. It tears up a relationship. But then Joseph remembered the most important thing. Who was with Joseph? There's a lurking lie that's very strong here today. There's a lurking lie that is deep in some of your hearts. But I really share with myself. Remember I said there's a lurking lie in this room. Some of you believe you're going to really be somebody if you can get with the right person. From, the, from some of the young adolescents in this room, some of the oldest adults, some of you believe, some of you guys believe if you could get with the right woman, you'd be somebody. And some of you girls believe if I could get with the right person, if I could only have relationships with that right person, I would be somebody. That's one of the tremendous driving forces of immorality. I'm going to be so alive. I'm going to be so with it. Somebody come into my office and say, I know I've been married for 12 years. I know I've been married and I know I have kids, but I'm so dead. And man, this person makes me feel alive. They make me feel like I'm in heaven already. It's a lie. You're saying if I'm with that person, I'm going to be alive. The only person that can make you alive is the person Joseph was with. And sometimes our emotions scream in as just the opposite. Don't follow those emotions. Joseph knew God was with him. And when a beautiful Egyptian woman captured Joseph's eye and tried to come on to him and propositioned him, Joseph's wall of defense was, I have a legitimate relationship with your husband, who's my friend, and I won't break that trust because friendship means so much to me. Second of all, I won't break my relationship with my Lord God because he's the one that I live for. He's with me. And I might be just a slave, but if Yahweh is with me as a slave in Egypt, then I already have a taste of heaven today. That solves the problem, right? You do that, man alive, you beware of eye contact, you remember your legitimate trustful relationships, you remember that God is with you, remember that adultery is a breach against his law, so it'll produce negative effects. You remember all that, and everybody lives happily ever after, the temptation goes away, no problem, right? Wrong. Look what happens. One day, the story gets intense. One day she saw, one day he went into the house to attend his duties. Faithful Joseph. This is verse 11. And none of the household servants were inside. He's all by himself in the house. 
she caught him and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in his hand and ran out of the house. The Hebrew text is even stronger here. It's like, man, this girl just about tried to r just rip his clothes off him. She grabbed a hold of him. That's how she got his cloak. Now, I want you to know, there's a time to stand, guys and girls. There's a time when you need to take your stand. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, okay? There's a time to stand. There's also a time to run. And this is the time, young men and women and moms and dads and everybody, this is the time to run. Whether it's male or female, when you are accosted like this, this is the time to get on your track shoes and get out. Paul put it this way to young Timothy. He said, flee youthful lust. Instead, devote yourself to righteousness and truthfulness and purity. There's a time to run. And Joseph knew the time to run. Now, I told you that God was with Joseph and Joseph prospered. He's done everything that God would want him to do. I mean, God could not expect a better example than the Joseph story. I mean, he's treated Potiphar right. He's remembered his relationship with God. Man, this beautiful woman just accosted him, and he takes off running. He goes so fast, he leaves his outer garment sitting right in her hand. So obviously this story's going to go on from here. He's going to live happily ever after. No. You know what she does? She screams. Bloody murder. The servants come running in, and she starts to cry. She has Joseph's cloak in her hand. She sits in her lap, and she bawls and bawls and bawls. She bawls all the way until Potiphar comes home that evening. And Potiphar walks in the house, and the servants say, you really need to go up to the inner room there and talk to your wife. Potiphar walks in. Honey, why are you crying? I'm sure she might have pulled this some other time before because Joseph's punishment isn't quite as bad as it could have been. And here he walks in, and what Potiphar sees is this knockout beautiful Egyptian woman sitting there with Joseph's cloak on her lap, and she lambastes her husband. Did you bring this Hebrew slave to mock us? Did you, you're the one that brought this servant into our house, and do you know that your servant tried to sexually abuse me? So who does Potiphar's wife say is to blame? Potiphar. It's all Potiphar's fault. I want you to see something. When you're involved in sin and Potiphar's wife, immorality is part of the cancer of her life. One of the ways that you could be sensitive to that is that incredible anger, incredible anger directed at the wrong source. And that'll happen again and again and again. And as believers, this is going to be one of the reasons that you're abused and you're hurt in a sinful world. Because as you live truthfully, as you live honestly, as you live purely in a sinful world, someone's probably going to lie about you. I was very naive about this, I think. I think one of the first sledgehammers to me in the ministry was when I became aware of, of slander, of somebody accusing me of doing something that I hadn't done at all, that I hadn't even thought of, that I wouldn't do in a million years by God's grace. But I was accused. And I remember very early in my ministry, that just caught me totally unawares. I've got a close friend. I've shared with you, you need to continue to pray for my friend. Uh, I can't mention his name, but he's a, just a dear, dear man of God. A terrible lie has been told about him. 
terrible lie. A lie that could never be brought back. Once it's let out of the box, it's out there. And when I heard this lie, it's just incredible. I can't believe that it could happen, but it does. And it happened to Joseph. All over Egypt, all over Egypt, Joseph was labeled as what? Joseph was labeled as the one thing that he wasn't. The one thing Joseph wasn't was an immoral man. But he went to prison accused of being an immoral man. Now, that's going to be one of the hardest things for any of us to have. You see, what we learned in this chapter, you know, I've shared with you about how to handle the boss's wife when she's coming on to you sexually. We've learned some great principles about being careful about the eye contact that shifts from brother-sister relationship to male-female sexual relationship. We've learned about remembering legitimate trust with friends. We've learned about our relationship with God and the fact that God is with us. We've learned about the need, there's a time to run, and Joseph takes off running. We've learned all these marvelous principles. And you would expect Joseph to live happily ever after. But instead, Potiphar's wife accused him of being the one that came on to her, and Joseph ends in jail. And that's going to happen to some of us. It could happen to any one of us in this room. And what it tells us is that being with God can bring success at one moment, it can bring prosperity in Pharaoh's household. But it can also bring us imprisonment. It can bring us persecution. Paul put it this way. Those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The early Christians were accused of, of eating animals that were illegitimate. They were accused of eating one another. The early Christians were accused of terrible, terrible immorality because the unbelieving world heard that they had what they called an agape feast, a love feast, and they thought it was some kind of a secret rite, and without checking it out, they spread rumors all over the Roman Empire that these were horrible sexual orgies. That's why believers were persecuted during the second century. It's the same kind of a Joseph theme going on. Lies and slander and hurt. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things for us to handle as believers. I think one of the hardest things for us to handle is when we've done all that we need to do. We've stood for the Lord. We've been moral. We've been tried to be biblical. The Holy Spirit's been upon us to help us to do right. And then someone tells a lie about us. And our whole reputation is in the tank. Now, if I were Joseph at this point, I would feel like this is the end. I can never serve God again. My reputation is ruined. I would feel like, you know, I, I was a slave and I had, but the Lord, I saw him bless me and there was great prosperity. But now it's all over. The Yahweh of Israel has forgotten me. You see, if you serve Jesus for just the, the, the good things that he brings to you, if you serve Jesus for just the success and the prosperity and the acclaim and the good time that he brings, at this point in your Christian life, that's it. It's over. You go into prison and you curse the creator that gave birth to you, and you forget him. And that's probably where the Joseph story is the strongest. Because the next chapter we're going to find out begins, the Lord was with Joseph in prison. You see, that's why we need to resist immorality. It's why we need to resist discouragement. Because the greatest thing that any one of us in this room can have, and by God's grace... There's no reason why any one of us should forfeit this. 
You see, Jesus can be with us here in Midlothian Bible Church this morning. He can be with us at our job tomorrow. He can be with us when some of our college kids, it's so exciting to see them, up from university. But he goes with them back to school. We can't go with them bodily. We can go with them with our prayers. But man, isn't it fantastic for the moms and dads? I know it's fantastic when they get in those cars by themselves and they head out. God is with them. God is with them. And that's what this Joseph story is telling us. Because God is with us, we need to guard our hearts. We need to be careful to realize what we do. We need to realize that even if being moral doesn't bring us success, even if it puts us in prison, if God is with us, if God is with us, then ultimately the end of this story is going to be a story of grace.